Welcome to the Literature Across Frontiers series, New Voices for Europe. I'm Alexandra Buchler, and it's a pleasure to introduce these interviews with writers who came to Europe from conflict zones and made the continent their new home. We have asked them about their journey, personal and creative, and what made it possible for them to restart writing as they emerged from often difficult circumstances. Some of these interviews are presented as podcasts, others as written articles. And all are a testimony to the admirable strength of spirit and perseverance the writers have shown. Hello, I am Marsha Links-Qualey, and with me today on the Literature Across Frontiers podcast is Julan Haji. Uh, Julan is a Syrian Kurdish poet, essayist, and translator with a postgraduate degree in pathology. He was born in Amuda, a Kurdish town in the northeast of Syria, and studied medicine at the University of Damascus. He's published several collections in Arabic. His first, published in 2004, was He Called Out Within the Darknesses, and it won the Al-Mahud Prize for Poetry. His most recent, Scale of Injury, came out in 2016. He also translates from the English and the French, and his prose work, Until the War, came out in 2016, until the war was based on interviews with Syrian women. Many of his poems are available in English, French, German, and other translations. His collection, A Tree Whose Name I Don't Know, beautiful collection, was translated to English by himself, along with Stephen Watts. And he's also collaborated with Palestinian-American poet Fedi Judah. He lived in Damascus until he had to leave in 2011, and now lives in Saint-Denis, outside Paris. Welcome and thank you so much for, for joining us today, Julan. Thank you, Marsha. So you said um, in an interview with Prairie Schooner that to translate poetry well, you need to know what's going on in the world and that your roots are everywhere in all continents. And I wanted to, kn- wanted to know what sort of knowing what's going on in the world that is in the, you know, in the realm of world events or language or poetry or something else. You know, I, I grew up, I mean, in the region where I mean, multilingualism is uh, something natural. I mean, I used to have several languages uh, as a child, and it appeared to be somehow uh, my destiny, which, um, I mean, I, I moved among several places, countries, and now this, and living with different languages become just a daily fact of my life. Now, I mean, what I've, I, I would love to talk about mainly, in fact, in about the words. Mm. That's my, my main passion. When we were in, in Wales 2019, um, just on the way to London to take part in a translation symposium in SOAS, I was in Wales visiting several places, uh, and the visit was organized by literature across frontiers to visit the the Welsh poet, I mean, Aris Thomas places, I mean, villages, towns. Um, And then I I asked myself, I mean, why should I go for Aris Thomas to translate him into Arabic? 
and he himself, as a poet, as a Welsh poet, who decided to write in Welsh but couldn't uh, write mm. poetry, so he he wrote prose in Welsh and poetry in English. And he kept this double existence in two different languages all his life. Um, but what really deeply, I mean, uh, interests me too in Aris Thomas, um, he, his life in church and uh, his deep interest in, in religion. Um, when when I, I gave that word at Soas, I was really half uh, improvisation. Um, it occurred to me, I mean, that translating through a language which is not the original language. Um, by then I was translating Kawabata, Yasunari Kawabata, the, the Japanese novelist. Mm. And... Um, most of his novels are translated into Arabic through French or English. Uh, I did translate Kawabata from, from English into Arabic, then from French into Arabic, and I mixed the two translations. Then I went back to the Japanese original through a friend who is a translator from Japanese into French. We had a long journey through four languages to to arrive in the you know uh, the final if if as it were the final version of Kaobata's translation and I asked myself I mean what's where is the the original text now for me the title of one of Kaobata's novels which I translated into Arabic is uh, Dandelions which I mean the name in English means too, uh, that, you know, teeth of the lion, mm. literally. And uh, in Arabic, I thought, should I write it Sin al-Asad? Because it's used even in, I think, in Morocco or in Egypt. And there are, you can find that some people call it Sin al-Asad. And um, then I arrived to how we could translate names um, and could we, for instance, like the French did when they translated uh, Lev Tolstoy, they translated his name, Leon Tolstoy, which is Lion. Could mm -hmm. I do this with names and how this impossible mission of translating names? It's absurd. But in fact, this absurdity led me to write, I mean, a long text uh, entitled Asma al Asad which could be the first Syrian lady, uh, if you can say it. I'm Bashar al-Assad's wife, but that's mm. not what I mean. Right. In fact, it's uh, Ibn Khalawi's book, which is Asma al-Assad, The Names of the Lion. And this came from Kawabata's translation, which I talked about in London. Uh, so it's a kind of a labyrinth that sometimes texts are born after a long time of being lost inside myself. Mm. I mean, the, the words are just moving here and there with no distinct orientation. The words are lost inside my, my head, my body, till they find a way, till they find a body, if we can say. 
and and this sometimes took a long time and it's always moving among languages i mean every day i move among four languages i mean so this is it became something natural for me but the final destination is always arabic and it's um, it's the language which really i feel i can give all my love to which is uh, it's a kind of addiction of passion and i, I don't think I, I can never one day write in any other language but arabic Wow, lovely. So when you were working on your collection, A Tree Whose Name I Don't Know, you translated along with Stephen Watts. Did did that process of being a part of reshaping your own poems in into English change them and change your idea about them? Uh, I have a feeling that whatever I'm writing is not entirely finished mm. and uh, there are very few things which I really feel uh, I mean I cannot modify or I will leave them as they are sometimes I only leave them aside and I feel that they, now they belong to someone else and I should go to the other drafts and and ideas but when I was translating, I mean, with Stephen, and I don't think I will really repeat the experience that's become for me. I feel myself somewhere else now. I can't really translate my own poems into English. There are really raw translations, which we, I mean, it, with Stephen, through long discussions, through this living the words again in, in a different language, till we, we agree, you know, over the poem in English. It's a translation anyway, which means I'm not adding or inventing anything new in English. Mm. But, but at the same time, at the very I mean, special moments, I feel that really through translation, I rediscovered my poem in Arabic. Um, and this, is, um, this could be confusing sometimes. And of course, it's time-consuming. And uh, and now I feel that just like, you know, I may repeat the same experience with Stephen, this co-translation. Stephen doesn't speak Arabic, but to translate some other poets, not myself. Ah, okay. That sounds lovely. Um, so so you came to, to France in 2011, and how have you, how did that change? So Arabic remains sort of... Um, the language toward which everything points. Um, how do you continue to keep the faith as a, as a writer, to survive as a writer in in a place where you are not part of the dominant language or in the dominant language's literary community? You know, when I, when I left Syria in 2011, November 2011, of course, I, I took nothing with me. I just left like many... Syrians, and I didn't think that there would be no return for a long while. But somehow, I mean, I managed that this living, uh, I mean, without having your own place or even without 
real security feeling that you always feel somehow that you should move somewhere else that you you are wherever you are um, like in a transit saline in an airport that you are just waiting for something else taking you somewhere else so if 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 you can't find a reconciliation with this state of being a stranger uh, in fact you will eat yourself away i mean you cannot on the other side look at that what you have with you are the words uh they survived with you you which means i mean your memory you your memories uh your place somehow lives inside you and you can change it now through this distance i mean change it through words how you can really reinvent yourself and your place and your past through being somewhere else and I mean, in France, which of course there are there are several languages. Of course, not only I mean the French, I mean which is the official language of the country, but if we of the provincial languages or down you know on on, on Brittany, uh, Occitan, and I have a passion of this, uh, you know, minority languages, if, mm-hmm. as it were. But, but it's not really a political interest, not because I'm, I'm a Kurd and I know this with my body and with my, I mean, consciousness that how you can survive through oppression and how you can create in the shadow. I have, I mean, a, a kind of affinity with, with this out-of-the-way cultures because even uh, of course i myself am from out of the way culture in syria if, uh, if we say kurds i mean in syria i mean they what they have published in terms of literature or what they have done in terms of i mean of arts is really modest mm-hmm. for, for many reasons but that, this modesty in fact do, doesn't mean uh that it's not important or that it doesn't, um, it's not rich or this, this past, which is, um, my, my personal past was rediscovered through other languages. For instance, in, in Toulouse in France, when once we visited the, I mean, the house of the Occitan or the, the, the Occitan cultural center. And I came across some wonderful writers like, I mean, Max Rouquet and Marcel Delpastre, who wrote in Occitan and not in French, and they live in France. Mm. Uh, so this faith, which is your own and does not change because of the social conditions, the historical conditions, or even you, your personal life, sometimes catastrophes, this this faith faith in language and in words is what really is what leads the poet through his life. I mean, we we continue. I mean, struggling with words, playing with them, playing with errors, with truths, with memories, with fears, and through this, 
mean long play sometimes you arrive to create something interesting for the others um, you know when we were talking I mean about Wales and Brittany and Wales of course they somehow I mean uh, they have something in common in terms of they are from the same uh, language family if we can say mm. um, there are writers there too I mean poets who till now they insist on writing in their own language and and I would say, why should I, I mean, look, I mean, to only to the books in, you know, in uh, Le Livre, Le Monde, or, or only in, I don't know, New York Times or some, they are really treasures uh, just uh, in front of our eyes in the shadows. And if we find love in these cultures, we could survive with them. We are. We. I mean, I don't feel really um, that these cultures uh, don't belong to me. I mean, in terms of of you know of universal uh, consciousness, if if you can say. Uh, so this, I mean, um, the emergency culture in which we live, that I mean, everything is swallowed up books, human beings, ideas, dreams, always you live just on, on breaking news or in a mm. hurry. And this, I mean, accumulation of, I don't know how many things, and I think maybe all of us are, are live with their own heaps of things and are waiting for them or left behind them. But now, I mean, I, I took the advice of a Kurdish Sufist poet who, she's buried in France, but she wrote in Kurdish and she never cared even about, about publishing. She published nothing in her life. But she has a very lovely biography in French. And the title says that uh, life is not short, but the days are counted. And I would really uh, love to leave this counted days for love of Arabic language. So is there a way that, uh, that Kurdish continues to exist as a, as a small language inside your, your Arabic? Or is there, when, if somebody is reading your work, do they find uh, Kurdish literature or culture or experience in there in, in some other way? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Marsha, I mean, Arabic language is larger than the Arabs, is greater mm. than the Arabs, mm. even like the English language too. And the, I mean, the, 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 the Arabic in which I write, I mean, has a Kurdish memory. So this memory changed, I mean, the Arabic words. They are, I mean, perfectly Arabic, but that's at the, at the same time, they are strangers because I, I'm using them, but I'm using them with love. And this, and of course, not only with love, there's always love will, will also recall, you know, I mean, not hatred, but I mean, contradictions. I will, I will say that, I mean, the Arabic I write with has a different memory. And this is extremely important because, I mean, any, any writer has his roots in his memory. And which, I mean, I never learned Arabic before going to school. 
So the basic, I mean, memories are always when they come to me, they are in a different language. Even I dream, some I think, in, in Kurdish. But I can't tell really which is the original language in which I write. It's always a kind of, I mean, perplexity, losing the way, finding it again. Uh, it's not always clear. Wonderful. So can you talk a little bit about the projects you're working on now? So you, you're continuing to work on a project with a strong connection to Aleppo. So your imagination sort of continues to exist, um, although you're living in France, in, in Syria. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, with uh, literature across frontiers in Catalonia, and before that, I'm in 2019. I mean, I was several times. I'm in Catalonia, and of course, again, you know, we will we will talk about the minority language problem and so on and so forth. But what really, I mean, I was looking for something else in Catalonia. I mean, in Garrotxa, in Olot, and um, we stayed there for one month. Uh, and I had, I mean, I went there with an idea in my, in my head to write about the Song of Songs, the Kurdish mm-hmm. Jewish version of the Song of Songs. I mean, the Jews of Zaho in Kurdistan of Iraq, I mean, used to speak four languages. I mean, you know, the Hebrew was, of course, there. I mean, Kurdish, Arabic and, and Aramic. And I mean, the Song of Songs among the, the Jews of Zaho were really transformed, you know, like the stories, like the tales of Arabian Nights. Through generations and centuries, they arrived to their own version of the Song of Songs. The biblical names were transformed into Kurdish names. So you can just see some instead of, you know, Jalad or Nata, you can find some Kurdish names used in a sacred text. And this, what because when I was looking for uh, in in Catalonia, is that of course, I mean, the I mean, what was historically a very important center of Jews in the Middle Ages, and the Jews, of course, are of course um, the people of the memory, as it were. They they are obsessed by the memory, and they are somehow, I think, even defined by the memory. Then I, I went, I used to take the bus from Olo to, to Girona to, to visit the, the Jewish neighborhood there in Barcelona there, El Cal. And once in, in a tiny village called Bezalou, which was an important Jewish village in the Middle Ages, I changed my mind. And I, um, and I started thinking of the, the Jews of Aleppo, who were suffered from, from there, from Bezalou, from Girona, from, and just um, after the Arabs and the Jews were expelled from Andalus, and uh, they went, you know, the Mediterranean journey till part of them arrived in Aleppo. But of course, they took many words with them to Aleppo. And you can find till now, I mean, some Jewish, some Hebrew words in the Aleppo dialect. Then I thought that I will replace Aleppo by some people who went to Aleppo. And both, I mean, I'm unable to go back first to Syria. I need a memory somehow to 
to start from, even if it's not my personal memory. And that's how, I mean, I started to, to think of Khair Din al-Asadi and uh, this new book in, or work in progress, which is 100 Names um, of Pain. And can you just tell us, so Khairuddin al-Asadi, he was, uh, I think, born in Aleppo in 1900. Uh, and he, I think he had only one collection that he published, Songs of the Dome. What, what attracted you to, to his memory and, and him as a starting point? You know, again, I'm, first of all, his passion for the words. Mm. I mean, he, for instance, Khairuddin al-Asadi, he wrote entire books about one world. I mean, for instance, his book Yalil, about mm. the history of these two words, Yalil, or night. Uh, and of course, you know, it's a refrain in, in the traditional Arab songs. But he wrote an entire book about these two words. But of course, he's, as a poet, I mean, he only, as you said, published the songs of the dome. And his monumental work, uh, encyclopedia, comparative encyclopedia of Aleppo. So, I mean, the book is a kind of a conversation with Khairuddin al-Asadi, the book I'm writing. And I published, I mean, long excerpts from it in, in Arabic. And it's in four parts. First one is 99, which includes uh, many things of different religions in in Aleppo and its countryside. I mean, Islam, Christianity, um, Judaism, and of course, Yazidis. There are Yazidi villages in the Kurdish mountains close to Aleppo in Afrin, occupied now by Turkey. Um, and the second part is 33, which is the Christian part, um, which has to do with classical Syriac literature, like Ephraim, like Bardisan, who wrote the Song of the Pearl, and, and about the apocryphal Gospels, and uh, the King Priester John, and how, I mean, uh, some of Arabian uh, One Thousand Nights and the Night tales migrated through a Christian Maronite Aleppo, Hanna Diab, Antoine Galin. Right. And, and, the, law, and the, the chapter one is about Judaism. It's um, Jews in the, in the Encyclopedia of Lassadi. And the final chapter is zero, which is poetry. Um, again, it's just when you look at Asadi, he has not been, as far as I know, I mean, uh, studied or translated. Even, uh, even in Arabic, I mean, he, he was neglected, even in, in his own city. And the only collection of poems, Aghani al-Qubba, the Songs of the Dome, is really, I mean, extremely rich. I mean, in fact, every text in this book I'm writing uh, is based on one line of this book. Uh, I mean, how you can build on the past how you can really start from this uh, only book to go to the whole universe. Mm -hmm. 
for you know one one of the books of Lasad is called um, Allah, which is a, it's a manuscript. It's not published. And just to to share this, I mean, passion for words with you. Only one example. I mean, maybe many many readers in English will not know the the name Allah. What does it mean in Arabic? And where does it come from? And many will say that it comes from ulh or walah, which could be perplexity, bewilderment. But the Lasadi, uh, in his manuscript, uh, he suggests that it is related to the serpent because Allah in archaic Arabic is the serpent. And it's part of the old pre-Islamic religions in the Arabic peninsula. Wow. So if, if this wasn't published, how did you get your hands on all this sort of body of work of Al-Asadis? Um, the encyclopedia is, is published. It was published mm. um, by University of Aleppo in 18, 1987, I think, or 84. Um, but the manuscripts, there are some excerpts of his manuscripts available. And through friends, I found them through friends from Aleppo. But most of his studies, I mean, you know, like um, his book about Aisa uh, Walisa, about two verbs, the verbs to be in Arabic. Mm -hmm. It's a 600 pages book. It's not published. And there are many other things. But, but for me, this uh, it's a personal call. I mean, there's something between me and someone who is still alive and who... Who I, who I mean, to my eyes, I mean, is very uh, modest. I mean, he asked nothing. He even, he never, I mean, as I said, he took part in any debates about prose poems or poetry or whatsoever. He wrote his book, I mean, as good as he can, and he went to silence. So he didn't participate in the sort of, yeah, uh, when, when you mentioned you were working on him, I went to, to look online and I could find very little about him. I could find actually nothing written about him in, in English or French and very little in Arabic. Um, so he didn't participate in any of these like sort of huge debates of the day, you know, like Adonis and, uh, and, and others in Shair magazine you know, were. No, as far as I know, even Adonis didn't mention him um, as a Sufi poet. No, no, I, and neither, neither Al-Asadi Al was not interested in, in any modernist debates whatsoever, as far as I know. I mean, he, he lived in really, I mean, in everyday life of Aleppo, and he traveled widely. I mean, he traveled to, to Ethiopia, for instance, looking for words, to Sudan, wow. to Yemen, to Europe, and... Um, and he, if you just only see some of his references, he would go to, to Budapest, for instance, looking for some words, uh, and he would not even have enough money to pay, I mean, the hotel, so he will fast. I mean, he will have only one meal a day mm -hmm. to cover his travel expenses. That's amazing. Um, so, Julen, we have taken up our, our half an hour, and I want to thank you so much for, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, and we will really be looking out for 100 Names of Pain 
when it's published. Thank you. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you for listening to the Literature Across Frontiers podcast. You can hear more episodes from the series by subscribing to follow the Literature Across Frontiers podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Feel free to rate the podcast and give us a review, especially if it's going to be a five-star one. Please also help us raise awareness about the Literature Across Frontiers podcast through your social media accounts. And finally, I'd like to thank the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union for making this interview series possible with their support. <laughs>